Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love to talk to creative people, people that have passion projects, that do things. Sometimes they get paid for them. Sometimes they just do it out of love. And I think it makes the world go around, that kind of stuff. So today my guest is Robert Chandler. He's the documentarian behind the new movie Dirty Sexy Comics, which is a documentary about gay erotic comics. But before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that this podcast, Dennis Anyone, is brought to you by... Me. That's it. I pretty much do it. Wouldn't it be funny one time if I said, like, State Farm Insurance? No, it's just me. It's me. Um, <laughs> but there are ways you can help support if you're a fan and you like listening to it. There are two things you can do. You can go to DennisAnyone.net slash support, and you can donate to my virtual tip jar. It helps me um, pay for the expenses that come with doing the podcast. Or you can consider becoming a subscriber to DNR Studios. That's a group of shows that I'm a part of. Uh, if you subscribe to that, you get my show two days early and you get all these other great shows and you can learn about that at dnrstudios.com. All right, that's enough for the plugs. Here now is the interview with Robert Chandler, the director of Dirty Sexy Comics. Joining me now, it's the filmmaker behind the new documentary, Dirty Sexy Comics. It's Robert Chandler. Hi, Robert Chandler. Hi, Dennis Tensley. It's such an honor to be here. You know, I'm a fan. Welcome to the pod. I can't, I can't believe I made it. I feel like I've made it now. Well, this is, you know, you're going to get that big bump from my tens and tens of <laughs> listeners. So I hope you're ready. Strap in. I, uh, I'll try. I'll, I'll reinforce the server and make sure everything can yep. keep ready. It's going to be amazing. So you've made this documentary about gay comics, specifically sexy gay comics. Um, what inspired that journey for you? When I came up with the idea of doing it, things were really winding down. It, it was kind of post-economic collapse. I've been a freelance entertainment reporter and producer. And I was taking a look at uh, you know, what I was doing. The work was really slowing down. And I wanted to tell a story that was important to me, that meant something to me, and meant something to you know, our community. And, and I wanted to be my whole self. And sex has always been a very important part of my life. Comics have always been an important part of my life. So while I was driving to the San Diego Comic-Con one year, I was just thinking and thinking. And this, it just hit me. It just hit me. Somewhere in Oceanside, this idea just hit me. And it was a story I needed to tell and wanted to tell so badly. Well, you talked to a lot of people. Um, how many I interviews did. roughly did you end up doing? You, it seems like you were all over wow. the place. <laughs> Thank you for noticing. Yes, I um, think there's Canadians I, in there. I don't know if you went there, but there's Canadians. Uh, it's amazing. I, I did go all over. I mean, fortunately, people, you know, there were people in Los Angeles and, and people I met up with at conventions. Um, I think I interviewed, I don't know if I interviewed like 15 or 20 people. I, I just didn't stop for a very long time. But I did take a trip from West Hollywood and I drove to Vancouver Wow. Which was crazy, but it was it was a part of the great adventure. Like this documentary means so much to me because there's, uh, it, it was an adventure making it, and, and hopefully that sense of adventureness shows on on screen for viewers. Do you remember your first exposures to sexy gay comics, or even comics that you found sexy, even if they weren't implicitly gay? Uh, I do. Um, well, I remember getting my first pack of comics. Um, I think my dad brought them home from the grocery store when I was seven years old. And they used to sell them in these poly bag three packs. So you never really knew what you were getting in you the middle. You never knew what that middle uh, one was. They used to do that with used gay porns, too. <laughs> you never knew <laughs> right. what the middle one was. And you're to... trying to move the bag so you could tell. Is that a play guy? Yeah, exactly. Is that going to be an inch? Exactly. Gosh, I hope it's a honcho. Anyway. <laughs> The three-pack thing brought um, me back. Yeah, I was thinking more like, is there a Fantastic Four in the middle? Um, right. But I, you know, I, I just remember like my, my first comics at, at seven, and they just opened up my world so much. I was a suburban kid, and they just took me to places that I never would have gone and gave me ideas and problems and moral dilemmas um, that I, I wouldn't have experienced otherwise. You know, later as, uh, you know, as a teen, as like a gay teen, being, finding comics that still spoke to me, that spoke to this new life I was embarking on and this new sexuality I was exploring was such a nice bridge into the gay world. And these comics really talk a lot about life, not just sex, 
Um, but about being gay and, and the whole of being gay, not just what we see on TV, because it's, it's the, you know, it's the activism. It was the, the, you know, dealing with the AIDS crisis, but also just being horny and, and wanting to have sex. And they spoke to, they spoke to all of me. And I've, I've always been so grateful for that. They really helped shape me as a, as a gay man. Which of the mainstream comic book characters do you think is the sexiest or the gayest? Oh my God. Well, now we have real gay superheroes, yeah, right? which is great. North Star was one of the first ones to come out. Um, Iceman from the X-Men um, is out and proud now. Um, who is sexy? Oh yeah. Oh, my first crush. My first crush ever was Mr. Fantastic from the Fantastic Four. And he's a weird one to have a crush on because he's older yeah, he's and he's a smart square, and he's right? able. Yeah, he's so square. He's so square. And I just loved him. When I was when I was about eight, there was a comic when um a, a multiverse Reed Richards came and took over his life. But what he did it was he stripped his uniform off and um and sent Reed Richards, the, you know, the real Reed Richards into the negative zone, which is like space, and he was floating in his underwear. And I remember opening this issue in the first page, big splash page, is Reed Richards in his underwear. And I remember just like as a boy thinking like, oh, I, I wish I was trapped in the negative zone with him so I could help him. But, you know, I didn't even know. It, it was it was this like, you know, this little spark of an erotic desire and, and wanting to connect with a man in that way. And, you know, this older sexy man with gray at the temples. And, uh, yeah, something happened when I read that comic. Did you get a sense of what it meant to the, the artist in a general way to be talking about this with you, that you were interested in it? Mm -hmm. Did they feel like they, they wanted to, to sort of share what they're up to, that this felt like a new thing? Yeah, it did. Well, I mean, a lot of them have been doing this a long time, but well, John Macy mentions a story in the, in the documentary where uh, he said there's nothing you can do to stop a conversation at a dinner party sooner than telling everybody you're a pornographer. Um, so I think it was cathartic in a way for a lot of these artists to talk about their craft and what they're doing because they're not always able to, and it's not something that they can talk about in polite society. Yeah. There was one guy who was offered a job, uh, doing a gay comic and he called his father. I love that story. Do you remember, you know what I'm talking uh, about? Yeah, it was Donalyn. Oh my God. That guy is, uh, ugh. He's such a hero to me. I mean, I, I love his comics and... And his name's you know, Donalyn. One word, right? Donalyn? Don, yeah. Yeah, Donalyn. Uh, but I, I read his comics when, uh, you know, in The Advocate, when I was, you know, 16, 17, 18. And he's, he, there's a real warmth and humor to his comics, and there's a real warmth and humor to the man. So being able to meet him was such an honor. Um, but yeah, he talked about, you know, very matter-of-factly, uh, calling his dad and asking his advice if he should be doing these erotic comics. And it's, he told his dad how much money he'd be making. And his dad said, like, hell yes. <laughs> like, I love that the tell dad them, was like, yep, how doing... much? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do it. Um, there was a theme that came up a lot with all of them, talking about courage, the courage to express mm -hmm. themselves in this way. It was something that came up a lot. Is that something you noticed when you were talking to people? Yeah, it, definitely. And it, it does take courage. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get their stories on video and, and share it with the world, because these guys are brave. And, you know, I mean, you know, it's not always been easy to be gay. It's, sometimes it's been worse than not easy. It's been illegal and and. You know, gay people have gone to, to jail and persecuted and lost jobs. So it did take courage for, for these guys to tell these stories. I mean, you know, going back to, to the Tom of Finland and, and like AJ, like in the, in the 60s, these guys could have lost everything. Yet they took our stories and put them down on paper so that we have them now. And they made it, each one made it easier for the next one to do it. I love it. There's a lot of history in your movie, a lot of uh, social conscience, but it's also fun. Like, you had some fun with those montages, <laughs> editing with the music. Like, what was the most fun part to work on? Oh, my God. Well, I mean, just the research, reading these comics and the diversity of the kinds of comics um, was so much fun. I mean, look, like, 
it is very worthy. There's, there's, a, it's, it's activism. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's gay history, but there's a lot of dicks of yes. all kinds. There's fake dicks, there's, there's dicks regular with dicks. fins on them. Dicks. Some dicks have fins. <laughs> there are, if, if there's a specific kind of dick you like, you're going to see it in this. And if there's, there's probably dicks that you didn't know you like, and you're going to like after seeing this. So there's, there's a lot of dicks. So it is a fun documentary. I mean, it's, I like thinking about the stories and the history and the worthiness, but there's a lot of fun. There's a lot of big dicks. There's a lot of humor. There's, there's a lot of sexiness. Like it's right there in the title. There is a lot of sexiness. Well, there's a section where everyone talks about their approach to dicks. Like some people like them <laughs> exaggerated and some people are like, no, I try to keep it real. Um, you know, like it's a whole little montage. That's, that's pretty fun. Oh, I feel like I could have done a whole documentary on the politics of dick size and comics. Um, yeah, that was one of my one of my favorite because in in porn we see dicks that are too big. Like people don't understand what a regular dick looks like because everyone has access to an unlimited amount of porn on the internet. So nobody knows what a real dick looks like anymore. You get to comment. That might be the title of this podcast, long. but probably not. Yeah, probably not. But it could. It's a contender. You don't know what a real. <laughs> um, so, so uh, you know, in comics, there's no limits. You know, in, in porn, like, they just weed out and filter out so that you've got these ridiculously, you know, big dick human beings. But in comics, you don't even have those realistic uh, uh, limitations. So the dicks can get really, really crazy big. I mean, like, there are dicks that are bigger than people in these comics. So I really wanted to address that and get some different perspectives because... It's fun. Fantasy is fun. Um, and for a lot of people, big dicks are part of their fantasy life. But I also wanted to talk about people who wanted to represent more normal-sized dicks or even the idea of showing dicks that are below what would be the average because guys have dicks of all sizes. And I would never want somebody to feel like they weren't adequate by seeing these comic book dicks or my documentary. Uh, guys should feel good about their bodies no matter what size or age, and they should feel good about their dicks, no matter how big or, or not big their dicks are. Well, I hope there, that came through. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there are stories where the artists are very um, honest, not just about their sexuality, but about their insecurities around their sexuality. There was an early comic. I wrote the name down. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, Billy Goes Out, where this, this young oh. gay guy goes out in West Hollywood, but he's sort of riddled by angst that he's that he's – wasting time exploring his sexuality or like his dick starts to talk to him. Like it's not just um, eroticism. It's, it's where does sex fit into our lives? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that one up. Billy goes out is by an artist named Howard Cruz who, who just passed away um, in the last few years. Uh, the guy's brilliant. I mean, he started with underground comics. He's very much an activist. Um, and that, and his stories r- really just, Tell, he just tells life stories. He just tells gay life stories. And he's been doing this since the early 70s, you know, just a bit post-Stonewall and through that gay liberation movement. You can really see so much of our history as it happens through Howard Cruz's work. And it was really important for me to include him. He doesn't consider himself an erotic artist, but he's a gay comic book artist who who doesn't shy away from the eroticism in his stories. And Billy Goes Out was a really important story because it was a guy who was being driven to go out cruising and wanted to hook up with somebody, but then thinking about how much sleep he's going to get so that he isn't tired at work the next day or, you know, what he really wants to get out of the night. And I love the eroticism in that story because we see Billy just dressing. He has a normal-sized dick. He's gorgeous. Um, but in that regular guy gorgeousness and he's got a regular size dick and we just see him dressing it's not all about him getting pounded or anything like that it's just those little moments that i really love in some of these comics because we don't see those normal moments that much we don't see people we see guys just getting dressed or undressed on tv well, like it's so binary yeah in that story i love the idea of him getting ready to go out and be cute and be and knowing <laughs> that he's gonna have eyes on him and that's like that took me back in a way i thought it was nostalgic and it's, there's a there's a sweetness to that idea of like oh I know this shirt works and I'm gonna rock it so I'm into that. We've all had those Saturday nights that we spend all day planning like yeah. what are we gonna wear 
how are we going to do our hair? What time should we go out? Yeah. Um, and, and that, are we going to have sex? What is, what is my place look like in case yeah. I bring somebody home? And, and that story really sums up just that everyday sexuality that, that we can all probably relate to. I have a friend named Brett who's obsessed. Growing up, he was obsessed with getting ready. I can't wait to be a grown-up so I can get ready, meaning to go out or whatever that is. It was more about the getting ready than the actual thing. Um, talk to me about I Tijuana Bibles. Tijuana Bibles was a fun term I'd never heard before. What are those? Yeah, they're so weird, and they're still a little bit mysterious. Um, I've never held one myself. Um, Maybe that's going to be I the had... title. That's going to be the title of this one. <laughs> no. Yeah, I'm going to just keep throwing out title ideas. <laughs> we could all vote on them at the yeah, end. Yeah, exactly. Um, the Tijuana Bibles were these little, um, like, photocopied pamphlets. Most of them were straight, and they were they were bootleg, as bootleg as you could get. So a lot of them would have comics like Blondie, or, you know, these are from, like, the 30s and the 40s. So a lot of the newspaper strips, you'd have, like, some erotic story about Blondie or whoever was, you know, hot in the comics back then. Um, but a few of them, just a few of them were gay focused and some of them were very homophobic. They would be making fun of, of gay people or gay sex and calling them, you know, girly boys. But a few of them were very, were actually erotic and geared towards gay men. And they're, you know, they're not archived and they're not available or anything like that because these, this was a, a niche upon a niche upon a niche. It was comics, it was eroticism, and it was gay eroticism. So there are very, very few that remain. There's a few scans on the internet, but even even books about Tijuana Bibles themselves, these gay erotic comic pamphlets from the 30s and 40s, they might have a line or two about the gay ones. So yeah, what what you see in the documentary is really what I was able to dig up to show, um, you know, they were kind of crude, and, and I guess they were sold like behind the counter at cigar stores. I don't even know how the gay ones got circulated. I There's still a few things that I'd love to find out about them. It's so They're wild. bizarre, aren't they? And it's, where did the, the name, name come from? Bizarre. Yeah, I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know if maybe that, that people crossed the border and they were easier to find. But, you know, you can see the, the Bible part of it because there is something holy about being able to connect with your eroticism in that way. And now with the internet, it's so much easier, right? Um, I think, I, you know, uh, a lot of younger people d- d- just don't know how hard it was just seeing a naked guy before. Something that really touched me about the documentary is a lot of the artists have stories about the secrecy of creating this stuff. Like yeah. so many of them had destroyed part, lots of their work because if anyone saw it, they would, it would be bad. Like so thinking of all the work that got destroyed because they they were afraid what would happen, right? Was that something that came up again and again? Well, that was that was one of the most exciting moments in doing the interviews was seeing that recurring theme because I, I really felt like a like a, a sociologist or an anthropologist at, at that point. Um, yeah, the, uh, a lot of the artists told stories about, in early adolescence, drawing naked men, drawing naked comic book men, drawing naked paper dolls, drawing uh, naked lumberjacks. And almost all of them told the story about burning the drawings afterwards because they were scared that they would be discovered um, that their parents would find out that they were gay, that they would get kicked out, that that whatever. Like, nobody wanted their families to know that they were gay. But they were compelled. They were compelled to to put these images down on paper. And there's something very powerful and honest about that, about the way that our true selves are going to come to the surface, whether we want them to or not. And then, unfortunately, as as gay men, the way that we feel the same compulsion to hide our true selves. I did it. I, the, the most interesting, the, the thing that really hit me was that as they were telling these stories, I could relate. I did that. Like when I was 13 or 14, I would draw these naked drawings of Kazar the Savage from, from Marvel Comics, but I'd leave his loincloth off and draw his dick and I'd hide them under my mattress. And then one, one point I got so scared that they'd be discovered. I burned them also. Yeah, you got to burn that shit. You cannot take any chances, not any. 
Yeah. You got to John Macy called it uh, one of the artists in the film. John Macy called it ritualistic. Yeah. And it's interesting that it was this ritual that we all shared without communicating. Yeah. How many of you guys had pen names and how many went by their regular names? Oh, wow. Um, now a lot of them are going by their names. I think that probably changed a lot during the 80s. But there were maybe people even in the 60s. People would come up with names like AJ. Tom of Finland isn't his yeah. God-given name. His middle name is um, not of. No, his name is not of. It's not. <laughs> it's not. And my research shows that yeah. of is not Tom of Finland's middle name. So a lot of them use other names. They had to early on. Um, some of them use their, their real birth names. Um, and some of them make up or use other names for other reasons because I don't know. I, they, it's like giving themselves an identity. When, when I create my erotic works, I use a different name. Robert Chandler isn't my family name, but it's a name. I, and I don't think of it as a name that I used to hide or mask my true identity. I think it's, it's a name that I gave myself um, for my true identity. So a lot of, I think for a lot of these artists and, and for me, like finding another identity isn't some, isn't the secret identity, but it's our real identity. And it's a chance to be ourselves, the chance to tell our stories. And it's a chance to give ourselves a name. Maybe everybody should give themselves yes, their own name. We all need name. that. It's like our we Sasha Fierce. Beyonce does it. She's it Sasha is. <laughs> um, but also Robert Chandler sounds very dynasty. It sounds like a, it's got a, it's got a, he sounds rich. Robert Chandler sounds rich. He sounds like maybe <laughs> I like that. he's played by Grant Show on a on a on a nighttime soap or something like that. That's my image. Any any time. I, Why did I, you yes, choose? I, that I love Dynasty. Why did you choose? That um, Where did it come from? Well, okay, so you know, I heard that Tony Danza. This is so unfair, and I know this isn't true, but I heard the story <laughs> I, once. I, that Tony I, my Danza. favorite stories are unfair stories about Tony Danza. So go for <laughs> unfair, it. Unfair, untrue, yeah. but. Uh, but I, I heard that Tony Danza always plays characters named Tony Danza because he's so dumb that he wouldn't be able to answer to another name. Right. He always plays Tony. So I figured, like, I'm probably not smarter than Tony Danza. So Robert's <laughs> been my, my name right. my whole life. So I figured, like, let's, let's play it that. safe here. Right. And, um, and Chandler was, uh, was the name of Cat I, uh, that I ended up, that ended up living with me. He was my friend's cat that I ended up raising. So oh. I didn't name him. Nice. But he was just proud and strong and fierce and playful um, and protective. And there's it, it was a way of, like, carrying on everything I loved about him and trying to embody those qualities myself. I'll take the Dynasty vibe also. I love Dynasty. So, yeah. There it is. I'll take it. I look, it would probably be like Robert Chandler III or something like that. Um, <laughs> I'm already a third. I wanted to shake the third. No, no third. No thirds. Um <laughs> No, and that's another reason. Yeah, I, I, I come from, like, my grandfather had my same name. My dad had my same name. So, you know, it just feels like being a number or, a you know, a, like the 3.0. And it was a way for me to be a first and, a, and an original. There it is. Um, a lot of the artists in your documentary are very crushable. Um, I have crushes on <laughs> several of them. And they're all winning and interesting. Um, one I really loved is uh, Carlo. Carlo Quispe. Quispe. Okay. I was like, Quispe? That doesn't sound right. Um, he is. He's effortlessly sexy. Well, he had a lot of really deep thoughts because he talks at one point yeah. about how when he reads past artists, he feels mm. in a way like he's making love to them in a way. Like it, there's mm-hmm. this connection, um, this erotic connection through time. Like just a lot of a lot of deep thoughts. What surprised you in your interviews with people? You know, I think the way that we're all so connected in what what they all wanted, like the, this compulsion to, to share and be honest with sexuality, this need to no longer compartmentalize our sexuality and to be able to have these conversations about who we really are. And I was surprised at how people were so in touch with like their desires and their sexuality. Uh, you know, I thought I was very comfortable and, and, but these guys really taught me um, just what it means to be integrated and a whole person and not have to fragment, 
yourself for, for, you know, this group of friends or your family or for your work and the way that they could access that and integrate their sexuality into everyday life was inspirational. I mean, you could definitely see it in their work, just that they had no shame. They just seemed like such fully realized people. And I was inspired by all of them. Like you, you talk about Carlo uh, talking about, you know, his connection with these artists that had died potentially before he was born and the way he just wanted to take those books, read those stories and have them inside of him, um, penetrating him. The way he put it was so beautiful and, and, and intense, but also just so natural and so right. You mentioned this idea of compartmentalization, and you work in mm-hmm. the sort of the corporate world. So how does that work uh, for you day to day? Yeah, this is me. Like talking to you, doing this project, this is me. This is important to me. These are the lessons I want to learn. These are the stories I want to tell. But I have a corporate entertainment job, and that's a character. That's the, an act. Um, that's a construct. Like when I look at myself in the mirror, or even my clothes, just don't feel like me. It's just... Um, it's been an interesting experience and I, I love it. I love the work I do. I love being part of entertainment. I love entertainment. Um, but you know, I, I, I get up every morning and, and put a costume on and go in and play a role. I think I do it pretty well. And that's why I needed to do a documentary that was just so balls to the wall, uh, gay is so sexual, so unapologetic to keep from losing myself and just uh, just being myself and reminding myself what's important and who I really am. Do people in that world know that you made this movie? There's a, there's a few. There's a few. <laughs> but, you know, I, I play it pretty safe for the sure. benefits. And I want to be able to like, make enough money in, in the day job, in the corporate world, to be able to do more things like this or find more ways to do like what you do and, and connect people. Like, being part of this gay community is the most important thing in the world to me and has given me so much. I really, like, owe my life and, and so much to... to you know, the gay men that, that I've been around my whole life that have, you know, taught me how to be, that taught me I was okay, that looked out for me when I traveled. I just feel so grateful to be part of this community. And I, I want it just constantly be a bigger part of my life. And I want to be able to give back more. Well, you're such a great cheerleader for other gay men, particularly creative people. You've been a big supporter of my podcast. You often tweet about it or or people that I have on the podcast, you're like, I'm going to go see that movie. Like, why is that so yeah. important to you? Like, you really are a cheerleader. Look, I'm just giving back a fraction of, of what I have been given my whole life. Gay men are good. Gay men are good to each other. You hear those examples and you, you know, we, we're too hard on ourselves and our community. Um, and we don't celebrate it enough by we, not you and me, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, and, uh, we are good. We do look out for each other. We, we nurture each other. We bring each other food when we're sick. We have in the past sat at each other's bedsides when we're, we're dying. We, we tell our stories. We listen to each other's stories. Like we are a good, beautiful community and we need to celebrate that more. And we need to, we need to talk about it more. Your podcast does it all the time. Look, I support your podcast because it's, Excellent. I mean, you're brilliant at what you do. You're you're truly one of the great interviewers. And the people you have on your show are so passionate about their stories and really create good work that they put so much of their hearts into. Your podcast lacks cynicism and it's inspirational. It makes my day better. Oh, that means a lot to me. I, I love that. Did you get any visual art souvenirs from your interviews? Did anybody draw you? <laughs> Because when I was a kid, uh, oh my God. I used to so love funny. to go to, like, Universal Studios and they would draw you. I thought that was miraculous. I thought that that's the coolest thing anyone could ever have done. So did you get any cool visual stuff? Yeah, it gets cooler than the amusement park characters. I <laughs> got – the coolest thing was, was Don Lynn, you know, who I've been reading since I was a teenager, sent me a note. And he drew me interviewing him. Like right down, and I didn't even remember this. I, I have my shoes off in the drawing he did of me. 
Um, and I forgot, I don't know why I did this, but I, I took my shoes off, I guess, when I was interviewing him. So he has me in my socks while I'm interviewing him. And it's so wonderful to have been drawn by him. Um, in the documentary, you see Patrick Fillion um, drawing from, you know, from blank page, yeah. drawing one of his characters on. Patrick gave me that, um, that drawing, which I treasure. Um, and a Dave Davenport just drew me a, a big picture of an uncut dick, which was also among my treasures. Merry Christmas. Um, what did you do with the, <laughs> the picture of you interviewing Donalyn? Is it small? Did you frame it? Like, where is it? I haven't framed it yet. Um, I keep thinking I'm going to move, but I've been here forever. So I think I just need to get it framed and put sure. it up on the wall. No, it's, it's a nice size. It's, it's like eight and a half by 11. It's, it's beautiful. I love it. Yeah. One of the things they talk about is like, I remember like in the, in gay porn magazines, there would be a comic you know, and I always enjoyed them. I love them. But anything could happen mm-hmm. in a comic. You weren't bound by anything. gravity or you could even yeah. see, sometimes you could see through people's bodies to stuff that's happening uh, inside. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, they talk about like the sky's the limit in terms of what the imagination can, can um, create. But also they talk about how they were able to get certain things past censors that if it were live mm-hmm. action, they might not have been able to do. Um, talk about that a little bit. Well, it, it was an interesting time in, you know, the sixties, definitely like through the sixties where, you know, fifties and sixties, it was, it was illegal just to send things that were pornographic and everything gay was pornographic, um, through the mail. And that's how they get you, you know, like you, you hear about mobsters being taken down by the IRS, but for you know, gay artists or just people who wanted to express themselves, just gay people who wanted to express themselves. It was the post office that, that could be the ones that took them down. So there were a lot of court cases um, about what could be mail. It was all about the mail. It was a little bit about what could be sold on the newsstands, but it was also about the mail. Um, so, yeah, once we could have nudity in gay magazines, it was a lot easier to do it in a drawing because being gay was illegal in a lot of states for a long time. So for models to be performing gay acts, I mean, they you, you were photographing a crime, but in a comic, in drawings, it's just lines on paper. Yeah. They could get away with a lot more and do anything. It wasn't a person committing a crime. Yeah. Um, during the film, there are several reenactments where you hear, you'll see a panel and you'll hear a comic voice. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Were mm-hmm. those fun to do? And did you do any of the voices? <laughs> you did the voices. Oh, my God. It's so funny. I, I love that that part of it. Um, so yeah, I wanted, you know, some of the comics I just wanted to show pure, but there were a few breaks where I really wanted to go in and, and, you know, show a whole story. And I, um, (laughs) I did a lot of scratch vocals on them, like temporary voices. I think that there's, I think that there's one or two (laughs) where I, I'm still in it. I I just never got around to having somebody record it, but no, we got, we got like a studio and I got, I got people I knew, I got some actors, I got this guy named Koloff who runs a porn site called Alterna Dudes. Um, he's, he's a lot of fun and he's a really great actor. So he came in and did a lot of the voices also. Um, and we had a blast doing those voices. And I think they came out really good, uh, you know, bringing the comics to life and, and trying to find, uh, you know, the right sound effects and the right tone for those characters. But I got to tell you, when the film showed at Cinema Diverse in Palm Springs, it was, it was a great sold out screening. Um, we were meeting with people afterwards and, and a lot of the artists came out and sold comics there. Um, it just felt like a real celebration. It felt like, a, like the big premiere for the film, but one guy came up and scolded me and said, I, I liked your film, but I really have a bone to pick with you. You shouldn't be reading these. We can read ourselves. It's insulting to the audience. Oh, that you so, were reenacting the, the lines that you would see on the panels. Yeah, he felt wow. like we were just reading them, but I didn't. I thought it was a little bit more than yes, just they were you know, acting. Reading what was on they the were page. bringing them yes, to life. I disagree with that guy's opinion. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course, that's the one thing I remember. Right, like yeah. the, like the one thing I scolded about is the one thing that sticks with me. Yeah, I also like the British guy that would at first Xerox his uh, comics at like a local drugstore and try not to and hope that the clerk let him do it. And like, like they were all these, they were all like spies trying to get their work smuggled out. Right. I love the Xerox person. 
Yeah, I think that was John Macy talking about just going to like whatever the Photoshop place was in San Francisco so he could send off the originals. Um, but yeah, they always had to worry about, you know, like leaving it in the copy machine or something right. and somebody finding their work. Uh, you know, which is so, which is, you know, kind of goes back to like what these guys are. Again, it's so much easier now to do whatever we wanted to do. You can see it all on, on, on Tumblr or on Twitter or, you know, somebody's blogger page. But, you know, you just go back 25, 30, 40 years, and people could have really gotten in big trouble for, for doing this kind of artwork. You know, what you just said about the um, amount of work that's out there and that people are owning it, we kind of talk about that in a lot of, in relation to a lot of aspects of gay culture. Well, now it's this. And then we sometimes forget to connect the dots. It's because of the people that came before that it's like this. Sometimes mm -hmm. we don't make that leap, I think, generally, as a culture. Like, it's because of these guys in this documentary that were trying to, you know, sneak it out of Kinko's or whatever, that it does <laughs> feel so much different now in so many ways around sexuality. Like, that line when you said, the guy said, well, I'm in pornography it cuts down a dinner party conversation like that. I don't think that's as true today. Depends on where you're at. But I don't, I know people in my world that are in that world and I don't think anything, I think they're cool. I'm into it. I, 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 I respect them. I admire them. Um, I envy them in some ways. I don't think the stigma is there as much. I'm sure there are pockets of places for sure. But, um, you know, just think of the people that have OnlyFans and all those, all those, mm -hmm. Uh, poor entrepreneurs. Um, it's such a different landscape than it used to be. But are people making money? Are what's the, how has the internet changed the business of these uh -huh. kind of works? I mean, aren't we still trying to figure out how the internet's changed all businesses? <laughs> I'm not right. sure anyone really knows how to make money anymore. But well, a lot of these people didn't make a lot of money to begin with. I mean, they did it because it was a passion. I think maybe when, the, you know, in the heyday of the porn magazines, there was probably a decent page rate. You know, if you were doing something for The Advocate, you could probably get, you know, a, a fairly nice rate for it. But I don't think anyone's getting rich off of these. Uh, you know, people are, are doing these comics at night in a lot of cases just because... They love it, and they want to get their stories out there, and they want to hone their craft, and they want to share this with other people. Um, you know, that, that's why I think that the guys from Class Comics, um, Patrick Fillion and Robert Fraser, are so incredible because they are doing their comics full time. I mean, not only are they, you know, uh, Patrick's a, a writer and artist, and he's incredible, and Robert Fraser is is an incredible writer and editor. Uh, but they're running this. Com they're running a publishing company, right? Um, you, you know, in Vancouver, and they're really like getting. They're they're like Marvel Comics in the '60s because they've they've got this shared universe, and they're publishing other people's work, and they've got a great distribution system. And you know, you can just check out Class Comics, and it's not just their work; it's work from people all over the world. So you know, it's great that they're able to make a living off of this and dedicate you know, both their lives full time to, you know, not only telling the stories that they're telling, but helping other people get their stories told and making it easy. You can go on like the class comics website and order a digital comic at three in the morning and, uh, you know, be reading it and hard in bed by three fifteen. Exactly. Uh, I love that three o'clock in the morning purchase. So I have never been to the Tom of Finland foundation in Los Angeles. It's what's it like? Have you been, I take it. You probably did the interview there. Oh, we got to go. Yeah, what's we it like? Go. Is it a museum? Uh, well, it's, no, it's a real functioning house. Like, like uh, you know, Dirk and some of the other guys live there. Uh, Tom of uh, Finland lived there when, right. when he came to Los Angeles. Um, so it's a, yeah, it's a bit of a museum. There's There's galleries, like Tom's old drawing room is preserved. But it's also very alive. Like, they have parties and events there and there's food and and um they have like trails in the back they have a real pleasure park in the back and there's uh like an outside dungeon almost so it seems like a lot of fun things go on there but they have talk and it's a very welcoming space for the 
you know, gay erotic community, the the leather community in Los Angeles to come to. They're very organized with their events. They're brilliant about preserving the art. Um, you know, Dirk Denner really knows, uh, you know, not only about Tom's history, but about a lot about art, a lot about gay art, a lot about erotic art. Um, but it's it's just very much an alive place. They have a newsletter. I really recommend people check out like the Thomas Finland Foundation's website and go to one of the events. They have an erotic art fair every year, which would blow your mind. Um, it's just a great place. So, you know, you can kind of feel like, like Tom's presence there and his mission and everything in his art that's sexy and fun and over the top and playful really still lives in that house. I love it. Now, who was the person that you interviewed that was there? Oh, that was, that was Dirk. Um, he, he was Tom's lover once and really worked with Tom to get his art out there. You know, the calendars and, and a, a lot of the reason why we remember Tom of Finland is because of Dirk and the way that he's gotten the art out there, the way he's preserved it and the way that he worked with Tom when he was alive. He, and he was so kind, you know, a lot of this kind of comes back to me, like you're, you're bringing up a lot of memories for me of, of community and how important that is to me. But, you know, Dirk's a bit older than me, and I really felt like he welcomed me into his home and shared his stories with me because he knew I cared. And it's just the way that we pass these stories on to each other um, in, in a warm, nurturing way. Like you were saying that it's a lot easier to do things now, but it's because of like what Tom did. It's because of what Dirk did. It's because of what John Macy did um, or Donalyn or Howard Cruz. Like they took some big risks so that it was easier for us to express ourselves so that I could make this movie or you could have a podcast. I mean, these guys did it for us. So, um, yeah, like when I think of, of sitting there in the living room at Thomas Finland Foundation and having Dirk tell me all these stories, it, it's, it really meant a lot to me. It's, it's really moving and just a reinforcement of like how good we are, how good our community is, but also the responsibilities that we have to the next generation to not just think of them as, uh, you know, as like sexy twinks, but really like in some ways, like our children that we have to look out for and like love unconditionally. Oh, I think that's and, you know, I, I, that, that was definitely a moment when I felt that unconditional love and, and it was, it was a beautiful place to be. Um, one of the things he said that stuck out to me is that Tom of Finland had no shame around being gay or around his sexuality. And of course it makes sense when you look at his stuff, but I think when I look at it now, I will think of that specifically like that. This was created by a man at a certain time who didn't have an ounce of shame around who he was. And how cool is that? Um, I mean, yeah, go ahead. It's it's goal. It's like the goal, right? To just love ourselves, accept ourselves and not carry around all that toxic shame. Um, another thing is there is Tom of Finland wine that I bought at grocery (laughs) outlet bargain market. And my friend Doug (laughs) turned me onto it. I do not drink, but he said these would be good prizes for the mismatch game. So I went and bought two cases. Um, and people at the mismatch game love them. And if you don't have one and you're curious, I will gift you one because I have some in my garage. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, I'd love to have one. I don't drink either, but I'm very curious as to what the reviews are of the Tom of Finland wine. The bottle is very sexy, but I, you know, I couldn't tell you what it tastes like. But it's grocery outlet bargain market right there. You never know what you're going to get. You never know. You never know what you're going to get. Great shopping. Yeah. Um, Uh, You said you brought Tom of Finland. One of the things that was... Interesting. I, I think before going into this documentary, I had a perception of Tom of Finland as uh, as somebody who promoted a certain body type, like this hypermasculinity, these muscular guys, and that there was almost this message that this is who you need to be right. to be sexy, to be sexual. And I didn't understand that that Tom came from a different time. I mean, he 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 would be a hundred years old now. So he grew up in a time when everybody told him that gay men weren't really men, um, that, you know, gay men were flouncy or not that there's anything wrong with that, but that there was something wrong with being a gay man. And so what Tom was doing was really transgressive because he was showing a different way to be gay. Now I think a lot of people enter into his art and think that Tom's telling us one way to be gay. But he really was giving us an alternative. I mean, sure, it was his fantasies, and he 
uh, lived in occupied Finland as a youth, so he'd see these guys in the uniforms and get turned on by them. But you, see, when you really look at Tom's work, you see the smiles and you see the warmth. They aren't a bunch of tough guys. They're, and a lot of them are really versatile also. So I found that there's a lot more nuance and a lot more depth and a lot more acceptance in Tom Finland's work and message than I went into this with. Some of the artists talked about bringing really serious things into their work, like the AIDS crisis and also uh, Prop 8. One, one story was really inspired by Prop 8. Um, talk to me a little bit about some of the bigger themes and how they dealt with those things that were happening in society. Wow, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that I really hope to get into in this documentary is that these guys aren't just giving these little fantasy fairy tables or fairy tales for us to jack off to. They're doing such regular work that real life gets into the work. It, it Real life is there in between the fantasies. I did a, a whole section on on AIDS uh, in the film, and uh, I mean, obviously, it's it's sad, it's it's horrible what our community went through, and people watching friends die or you know losing losing your entire friend group could was devastating. But there's something hopeful about the way that these artists took on AIDS, um, either just sharing the stories and letting people know that they weren't alone, um, finding a way to be sexual within this crisis that nobody seemed to care about, or really taking it on in a fantasy way. Uh, Dave Davenport talks about a story done by a wonderful artist named Brad Parker um, that tells a story about a man looking for a cure for AIDS, and he finds this doctor, this mystic doctor, who gives him the cure, but it turns him into a werewolf. And this werewolf has the ability to cure other people with AIDS by having sex with them, so that it comes full circle. So sex in this story stops being about disease, but it becomes about the cure. Um, I, I, I mean, I wish that was real life, but it's so beautiful to read the story and, and find this hope and to kind of like uh, contort reality so that it's something more hopeful and more sex positive and, and more loving and more just. Yeah. Um, I also got nostalgic about bookstores because they talked about Lambda Rising or it made me think of The Different Light or Circus of Books. Like, what did you think about bookstores when you were talking about this subject? I mean, bookstore. There's maybe not a lot of talk about bookstores in the film, but it's sort I of, feel like it's sort of under the under the surface. It's like the elephant in the room, in a way. Yeah, it's kind of like in those movies when they say like New York is a character. It's like the sixth character in our film or right. whatever. I feel like bookstores are like the silent character in the film because, oh, man, they were such a great way of connecting. Um, Without Different Light Bookstore, I definitely wouldn't have been into gay comics. I wouldn't have found them. I wouldn't have made this documentary. Boy, they were just an, a sanctuary for, for me, I think, for many of us. I lived in conservative Orange County, and I would drive up to West Hollywood just to go to Different Light Bookstore and then take the books that I found and, and read them at the French Marketplace, and it, it saved my mind. I mean, those, those bookstores were just a place of discovery and connection, and I never knew what was going to be in there uh, when I walked in the doors, and there'd be flyers and postcards and readings. Uh, I really miss them. I mean, I know that we have a lot of wonderful things, and it's evolution, it's life, the way things change, but, you know, if I could go back in time, I wouldn't mind going back to, like, 1988 and spending a day at a different, like, bookstore in West Hollywood. Yeah, it'd be beautiful. Um, tell people how they can see your movie. Ah, um, well, people can see the movie for free um, at DirtySexyComics.com. I have it up at Vimeo, so it's just DirtySexyComics, one word, dot com. And um, because I got some seed money from Adam Mail, right on. Um, you know, the sex toy company, who are so great and were so patient and supportive with me while I was making this film. Um, you know, you can see the movie for free if you type in the code COMICS, C-O-M-I-C-S, um, in the promo code box. Um, so, yeah, I just want everybody to see it. I, I want 
uh, people to hear these stories. I want people to feel great about the community. I want people to feel great about their own sexuality. And it's not just for comics fans. Uh, it's it's for you know people who want to hear gay stories or uh, care about art um, and maybe just want to see some really cool cartoon dicks. Exactly. Come for the dicks, stay for the heart. Um, oh, can I mention uh, one of the other art, like another, you know, we talked about like bookstores being the, the uh, like uh, unseen character, but I also uh, feel really grateful to uh, Pansy Division, the band that lent their music to the, um, to the film. Yeah, the music's uh, really They were fun. so nice. Yeah. Yeah, they're great. They're they're a gay punk band. Um they've been around since the nineties. Um they call themselves the Buttfuckers of Rock and Roll. Um their their music is incredible, like no euphemisms, no coding, no alluding to anything. Like they're telling our stories like the way we talk with our friends late. Um, well, after dinner, uh, their music's so exciting, and they it really kind of embodied the the spirit of the film. They're so much cooler than I am or ever will be, but I I, I was so grateful I was able to use their their music um, and scatter it throughout the film because that that rebellious, unapologetic punk spirit was a lot like what these artists were doing. Um, you know, really like sticking their necks out, knowing that they'd never be mainstream, knowing that they'd never be rich, but they did it for themselves and they did it for us. So thank you, Pansy Division. Thank you, Adam Ale, for, for giving me that seed money. There's, you know, like it really took a village to make a dirty documentary. Well, the music's really fun and it adds a lot to it. And you have some fun, a lot of fun with the editing and things like that. Um, here's my final question and see if you spark to this. If not, we'll pretend it's a different question. Um, <laughs> I know for me, go, there are certain stories I go back to again and again. Is there a gay comic that you really went back to again and again that you know better than any others that really speaks to you or turns you on or meant something to you at a certain time in your life? Is there one that you know and have, have consumed more than others? Oh, yeah. I think it might be Wendell by Howard Cruz. It was a story that he told over years in The Advocate. He'd do, I think, sometimes two pages. Sometimes it was down to one. So Wendell was this young gay man coming out, um, kind of falling into activism, like finding a boyfriend, getting an apartment, getting having job problems. It, there was this wonderful averageness about it. Um, but, you know, sometimes we'd see Wendell having sex. It was mostly funny. Um, but, you know, Howard Cruz would show Wendell naked. Sometimes his boyfriend was an actor and went out and did a gay play in the 90s. And I'm sure you remember there were a lot of nude, a lot of nude guys in, in yes. gay plays in the 90s. Party, Let's try to bring that back. Singing. I love it. Yeah, no problem. Yes, more. We need more of that. Yeah. So I always go back to, to Wendell because it just contains the completeness of gay life. Like, Everything we are, the, the the dumb things like the family dinners, but also like that excitement of new love, new lust, um, and just getting comfortable with ourselves and growing up. And I learned how to, I feel like I learned how to be gay from reading Wendell and, and comics like Wendell. And I'm really grateful to people like Howard Cruz. I feel like he's my dad in a lot of ways. Like he taught me more about who I need to be than my dad did. Oh, and I should mention like, there's a, there's also a half hour documentary about Howard Cruz. That's part of this documentary package there on the, on the Vimeo page. So anyone who goes and watches the documentary, you know, check out the Howard Cruz documentary because he's an incredible artist, incredible activist, um, incredible storyteller and really somebody that we should all know. He's like the Armistead Moffin of comics. I love it. I have one more question. So when you're interviewing these artists, some of whom are newer, but some of whom you've known their work for years and they really meant something to you, how do you kind of express what it means to you without, you know, seeming unprofessional? Like, what are those moments like? Do you get you get moved? Totally moved. Like, like you, you know, like putting together something like this is a lot of work. You know, there's no money and, and uh, it's a lot of time and sweat. Um, but meeting these truly great men was more reward than I could ever ask for. And I was sitting in the room with people who were just legends to me and, and heroes. So I, I don't know. I can, sh I can show you the uncut tapes uh, and see if I behave professionally. But I gushed. <laughs> you gush. Sometimes you got to gush. I gushed. Yeah. Sometimes, Sometimes you, gotta you gush. gotta gush. You gotta gush. You know, 
Uh, yeah, I would just tell a lot of these artists what they meant to me and, and when I read them and how I discovered them and what I learned from them. And I don't know. I, I'm not going to apologize for that. I mean, I'm, I think I'm proud of gushing and sharing with them how much they meant and how much they gave to me. I mean, it's, it's that cycle in our community that we learn from our elders um, and we should show them gratitude and we, you know, we teach and protect our, our youth. And it's what's great about our community. We're like a tribe and, and we are good to each other. And sitting in the room with these men and having them invite me into their homes and, and taking the time to tell me their stories. Yeah. I was in awe. I was absolutely in awe. Um, and grateful and moved. And it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Um, it really nourished me. So yeah, I hope I was professional. Like I got some good interviews out of them. And I, I think I was always polite and courteous, but I gushed, I was moved. I might've even shed a tear or 17 while I was doing the interviews. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a really, really great experience. Um, you know, these, these guys aren't, aren't going to always be with us. Howard, we lost Howard Cruz a few years ago. Um, and I'm, so grateful I got to meet them, and I'm even more grateful that I got to put their stories down on, on digital video and, and put this movie together. And I hope other people find it nourishing also to hear their stories and hear what they did. And, you know, and even if you aren't nourished by it, you're going to see a bunch of dicks, so it's worth it. I love it. All right, here's my real final question. What was the takeaway for you at this point where you are in your life and your career to have done a passion project like this and seen it through. What did it mean to you? Oh, wow. Well, uh, you know, you're a creative person and you've done so many great things just to finish something. It took me a long time. It took me a long time to finish, um, to, you know, to balance it with like a, a, a full-time plus job and, and life. It took me a long time to finish. Um, it just gives such a sense of accomplishment. It, it gives me a, a sense of pride and, I feel like I can take on just about anything. You know, those those doubts fill my head. Um, but I I know that I went all over the country. I I I, I did this. I put it together. The editing is like crazy making. Um, I did subtitles for the movie. I did subtitles for the movie. I learned how to do subtitles. Um, so I just feel like I can take on anything now. I feel like we can take on anything, but you know, I, 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 I feel like I can do it. Like whatever crazy thing I come up with next, um, you know, whatever book I want to write, whatever I want to take on, if I'm disciplined and focused enough, I can, we can, any of us can take on our, our crazy stories or our crazy dreams or our crazy passion projects. I love it. What a great note to end on. Robert Chandler, thank you very much for doing the podcast. Everybody needs to check out Dirty Sexy Comics. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis. I'm a fan. I'm such an honor. Now my life is complete. I've been on Dennis Anyone. Yay! Thanks again to Robert Chandler. Check out his movie, Dirty Sexy Comics, by going to DirtySexyComics.com. All right, so this happened. Um, last weekend, my good friend Barbara Deutsch... Uh, took me to see the musical Sunday in the Park with George at the Pasadena Playhouse, the Sondheim musical. And I don't think I've ever seen it. I thought maybe I had seen it because I knew some of the music or maybe I'd seen the video with Mandy Patinkin. But as I was watching it, I was like, no, I don't think I've actually seen this show. Um, and I was so moved by it. I kind of melted down a little bit. I found it so powerful and beautiful and... I love shows where you're not even sure why you're moved. There's so many different themes being explored, and it's you're not even sure what you're meant to think, but you're just a mess. Um, that, that was my story. Um, I think I connected to it because it had to do with being an artist and why... You know, the, the price you can pay for that in terms of a normal life, in terms of a personal life... Um, not that I'm this big artist or anything like that, but, 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 but the character in this pays a big price for his art, but he's also obsessed with it. Like he can't see above what he's sketching or painting. And yet at the end, the art really matters. And the people in the painting are happy to have been part of something. 
um, I don't know. It just, it just moved me so much. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's one of those crying moments where you worry that you're shaking the row. Uh, that was the kind of uh, afternoon I had. And, of course, my friend Barbara loves to tease me for things like that because she could kind of see when I'm, you know, a little fragile or whatever. And we just laugh and laugh. So, anyway, if you're a fan of musicals, if you're a fan of Sondheim, the, the production that's currently at the Pasadena Playhouse, if you happen to be in L.A., is is really terrific. I highly recommend it. And maybe you'll blubber through it just like I did. All right, that's enough for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Shout out to AJ Sousa for mixing the episodes, JB Bercy for uploading them. My music is by Mark Daniels for placement music. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye. Bye.